Chapter 6 of the Story of My Boyhood and Youth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of My Boyhood and Youth by John Muir. Chapter 6 The Plowboy. The Crops. Doing Chores. The Sights and Sounds of Winter. Road Making. The Spirit Wrapping Craze. Tuberculosis Among the Settlers. A cruel brother, the rights of the Indians, put to the plow at the age of twelve, in the harvest field, over industry among the settlers, running the breaking plow, digging a well, choke damp, lining bees. At first, wheat, corn, and potatoes were the principal crops we raised, wheat especially. But in four or five years, the soil was so exhausted that only five or six bushels an acre, even in the better fields, was obtained. Although, when first plowed, twenty and twenty-five bushels was about the ordinary yield. More attention was then paid to corn, but without fertilizers the corn crop also became very meager. At last it was discovered that English clover would grow on even the exhausted fields, and that, when plowed under and planted with corn, or even wheat, wonderful crops were raised. This caused a complete change in farming methods. The farmers raised fertilizing clover, planted corn, and fed the crop to cattle and hogs. But no crop raised in our wilderness was so surprisingly rich and sweet and purely generous to us boys, and indeed to everybody, as the watermelons and muskmelons. We planted a large patch on a sunny hill slope the very first spring, and it seemed miraculous that a few handfuls of little flat seeds should, in a few months, send up a hundred wagon-loads of crisp, sumptuous, red-hearted, and yellow-hearted fruits, covering all the hill. We soon learned to know when they were in their prime, and when overripe and mealy. Also, that if a second crop was taken from the same ground without fertilizing it, the melons would be small and what we called soapy that is soft and smooth, utterly uncrisp, and without a trace of the lively freshness and sweetness of those raised on virgin soil. Coming in from the farm work at noon, the half-dozen or so of melons we had placed in our cold spring were a glorious luxury that only weary, barefooted farm boys can ever know. Spring was not very trying as to temperature, and refreshing rains fell at short intervals. The work of plowing commenced as soon as the frost was out of the ground. Corn and potato planting and the sowing of spring wheat were comparatively light work. While the nesting birds sang cheerily, grass and flowers covered the marshes and meadows and all the wild, uncleared parts of the farm, and the trees put forth their new leaves, those of the oaks forming beautiful purple masses, as if every leaf were a petal. And with all this we enjoyed the mild, soothing winds the humming of innumerable small insects and hylas, and the freshness and fragrance of everything. Then, too, came the wonderful passenger pigeons streaming from the south, and flocks of geese and cranes filling all the sky with whistling wings. The summer work, on the contrary, was deadly heavy, especially harvesting and corn-hoeing. All the ground had to be hoed over for the first few years before father bought cultivators or small weed-covering plows, and we were not allowed a moment's rest. 
the hose had to be kept working up and down as steadily as if they were moved by machinery. Plowing for winter wheat was comparatively easy when we walked barefooted in the furrows, while the fine autumn tints kindled in the woods, and the hillsides were covered with golden pumpkins. In summer, the chores were grinding size, feeding the animals, chopping stovewood, and carrying water up the hill from the spring on the edge of the meadow, etc. Then breakfast, and to the harvest or hayfield. I was foolishly ambitious to be first in mowing and cradling, and by the time I was sixteen led all the hired men. An hour was allowed at noon for dinner and more chores. We stayed in the field until dark, then supper, and still more chores, family worship, and to bed, making altogether a hard, sweaty day of about sixteen or seventeen hours. Think of that, ye blessed eight-hour-day laborers. In winter, Father came to the foot of the stairs and called us at six o'clock to feed the horses and cattle, grind axes, bring in wood, and do any other chores required, then breakfast, and out to work in the mealy, frosty snow by daybreak, chopping, fencing, etc. So in general, our winter work was about as restless and trying as that of the long-day summer. No matter what the weather, there was always something to do. During heavy rains or snowstorms, we worked in the barn, shelling corn, fanning wheat, thrashing with the flail, making axe handles or ox yokes, mending things, or sprouting and sorting potatoes in the cellar. No pains were taken to diminish or in any way soften the natural hardships of this pioneer farm life, nor did any of the Europeans seem to know how to find reasonable ease and comfort if they would. The very best oak and hickory fuel was embarrassingly abundant and cost nothing but cutting and common sense. But instead of hauling great, heart-cheering loads of it for wide, open, all-welcoming, climate-changing, beauty-making, godlike ingle fires, it was hauled with weary, heart-breaking industry into fences and waste places to get it out of the way of the plow and out of the way of doing good. The only fire for the whole house was the kitchen stove, with a firebox about 18 inches long and 8 inches wide and deep, scant space for three or four small sticks, around which in hard zero weather all the family of ten persons shivered, and beneath which in the morning we found our socks and coarse soggy boots frozen solid. We were not allowed to start even this despicable little fire in its black box to thaw them. No, we had to squeeze our throbbing, aching, chilblained feet into them, causing greater pain than toothache, and to hurry out to chores. Fortunately, the miserable chilblained pain began to abate as soon as the temperature of our feet approached the freezing point, enabling us, in spite of hard work and hard frost, to enjoy the winter beauty the wonderful radiance of the snow when it was starry with crystals, and the dawns and the sunsets and white noons, and the cheery enlivening company of the brave chickadees and nuthatches. The winter stars far surpassed those of our stormy Scotland in brightness, and we gazed and gazed as though we had never seen stars before. Oftentimes the heavens were made still more glorious by auroras, 
the long lance rays called merry dancers in scotland streaming with startling tremulous motion to the zenith usually the electric auroral light is white or pale yellow but in the third or fourth of our wisconsin winters there was a magnificently colored aurora that was seen and admired over nearly all the continent the whole sky was draped in graceful purple and crimson folds glorious beyond description father called us out into the yard in front of the house where we had a wide view crying come come mother come bairns and see the glory of god all the sky is clad in a robe of red light look straight up to the crown where the folds are gathered hush and wonder and adore for surely this is the clothing of the lord himself and perhaps he will even now appear looking down from his high heaven this celestial show was far more glorious than anything we had ever yet beheld and throughout that wonderful winter hardly anything else was spoken of we even enjoyed the snowstorms the thronging crystals like daisies coming down separate and distinct were very different from the tufted flakes we enjoyed so much in scotland when we ran into the midst of the slow-falling feathery throng shouting with enthusiasm jenny's pluckin her doos jenny's pluckin her doos doves nature has many ways of thinning and pruning and trimming her forests lightning strokes heavy snow and storm winds to shatter and blow down whole trees here and there or break off branches as required the results of these methods i have observed in different forests but only once have i seen pruning by rain the rain froze on the trees as it fell and grew so thick and heavy that many of them lost a third or more of their branches the view of the woods after the storm had passed and the sun shone forth was something never to be forgotten every twig and branch and rugged trunk was encased in pure crystal ice and each oak and hickory and willow became a fairy crystal palace such dazzling brilliance such effects of white light and iris light glowing and flashing i had never seen before nor have i since this sudden change of the leafless woods to glowing silver was like the great aurora spoken of for years and is one of the most beautiful of the many pictures that enriches my life and besides the great shows there were thousands of others even in the coldest weather manifesting the utmost fineness and tenderness of beauty and affording noble compensation for hardship and pain one of the most striking of the winter sounds was the loud roaring and rumbling of the ice on our lake from its shrinking and expanding with the changes of the weather the fishermen who were catching pickerel said that they had no luck when this roaring was going on above the fish i remember how frightened we boys were when on one of our new year holidays we were taking a walk on the ice and heard for the first time the sudden rumbling roar beneath our feet and running on ahead of us creaking and whooping as if all the ice eighteen or twenty inches thick was breaking in the neighborhood of our wisconsin farm there were extensive swamps consisting in great part of a thick sod of very tough carex roots covering thin watery lakes of mud they originated in glacier lakes that were gradually overgrown 
This sod was so tough that oxen with loaded wagons could be driven over it without cutting down through it, although it was afloat. The carpenters who came to build our frame house, noticing how the sedges sunk beneath their feet, said that if they should break through they would probably be well on their way to California before touching bottom. On the contrary, all these lake basins are shallow as compared with their width. When we went into the Wisconsin woods there was not a single wheel track or cattle track. The only man-made road was an Indian trail along the Fox River between Portage and Pockwocky Lake. Of course the deer, foxes, badgers, coons, skunks, and even the squirrels had well-beaten tracks from their dens and hiding places in thickets, hollow trees, and the ground, but they did not reach far, and but little noise was made by the soft-footed travelers in passing over them, only a slight rustling and swishing among fallen leaves and grass. Corduroying the swamps formed the principal part of road-making among the early settlers for many a day. At these annual road-making gatherings, opportunity was offered for discussion of the news, politics, religion, war, the state of the crops, comparative advantages of the new country over the old, and so forth. But the principal opportunities recurring every week were the hours after Sunday church services, I remember hearing long talks on the wonderful beauty of the Indian corn, the wonderful melons, so wondrous fine for sloking a body on hot days, their contempt for tomatoes, so fine to look at with their sunny colors and so disappointing in taste, the miserable cucumbers the Yankee bodies ate, though tasteless as rushes, the character of the Yankees, etc. Then there were long discussions about the Russian war, news of which was eagerly gleaned from Greeley's New York Tribune, the great battles of the Alma, the charges at Balaclava and Inkerman, the siege of Sebastopol, the military genius of Todleben, the character of Nicholas, the character of the Russian soldier, his stubborn bravery, who for the first time in history withstood the British bayonet charges, the probable outcome of the terrible war, the fate of Turkey, and so forth. Very few of our old country neighbors gave much heed to what are called spirit wrappings. On the contrary, they were regarded as a sort of sleight-of-hand humbug. Some of these spirits seemed to be stout, able-bodied fellows, judging by the weights they lift and the heavy furniture they bang about. But they do no good work that I know of, never saw wood, grind corn, cook, feed the hungry, or go to the help of poor, anxious mothers at the bedsides of their sick children. I noticed when I was a boy that it was not the strongest characters who followed so-called mediums. When a rapping storm was at its height in Wisconsin, one of our neighbors, an old Scotchman, remarked, "'Their pure, silly medium bodies may gang to the devil with their rapping spirits, for they did no good, and I think the devil's their father.'" Although in the spring of 1849 there was no other settler within a radius of four miles of our Fountain Lake farm, in three or four years almost every quarter section of government land was taken up, mostly by enthusiastic home-seekers from Great Britain, with only here and there Yankee families from adjacent states, who had come drifting indefinitely westward in covered wagons, seeking their fortunes like winged seeds, all alike striking root and gripping the glacial drift soil as naturally as oak and hickory trees, happy and hopeful, 
establishing homes and making wider and wider fields in the hospitable wilderness. The axe and plough were kept very busy. Cattle, horses, sheep, and pigs multiplied. Barns and corn cribs were filled up, and man and beast were well fed. A schoolhouse was built, which was used also for a church, and in a very short time the new country began to look like an old one. Comparatively few of the first settlers suffered from serious accidents. One of our neighbors had a finger shot off, and on a bitter frosty night had to be taken to a surgeon in Portage, in a sled drawn by slow, plodding oxen, to have the shattered stump dressed. Another fell from his wagon and was killed by the wheel passing over his body. An acre of ground was reserved and fenced for graves, and soon consumption came to fill it. One of the saddest instances was that of a Scotch family from Edinburgh, consisting of a father, son, and daughter, who settled on eighty acres of land within a half-mile of our place. The daughter died of consumption the third year after their arrival, the son one or two years later, and at last the father followed his two children. Thus sadly ended bright hopes and dreams of a happy home in rich and free America. Another neighbor, I remember, after a lingering illness, died of the same disease in midwinter and his funeral was attended by the neighbors in sleighs during a driving snowstorm when the thermometer was fifteen or twenty degrees below zero. The great white plague carried off another of our near neighbors, a fine Scotchman, the father of eight promising boys, when he was only about forty-five years of age. Most of those who suffered from this disease seemed hopeful and cheerful up to a very short time before their death. But Mr. Reed, I remember, on one of his last visits to our house, said, with brave resignation, I know that never more in this world can I be well, but I must submit. I must just submit. One of the saddest deaths from other causes than consumption was that of a poor feeble-minded man whose brother, a sturdy blacksmith and preacher, etc., was a very hard taskmaster. Poor half-witted Charlie was kept steadily at work, although he was not able to do much, for his body was about as feeble as his mind. He never could be taught the right use of an axe, and when he was set to chopping down trees for firewood, he feebly hacked and chipped round and round them, sometimes spending several days in nibbling down a tree that a beaver might have gnawed down in half the time. Occasionally, when he had an extra large tree to chop, he would go home and report that the tree was too tough and strong for him, and that he could never make it fall. Then his brother, calling him a useless creature, would fell it with a few well-directed strokes, and leave Charlie to nibble away at it for weeks, trying to make it into stove-wood. The brawny blacksmith minister punished his feeble brother without any show of mercy for every trivial offense or mistake or pathetic little shortcoming. All the neighbors pitied him, especially the women, who never missed an opportunity to give him kind words, cookies, and pie. Above all, they bestowed natural sympathy on the poor imbecile, as if he were an unfortunate motherless child. In particular, his nearest neighbors, Scotch Highlanders, warmly welcomed him to their home, and never wearied in doing everything that tender sympathy could suggest. To those friends he ran away at every opportunity. But after years of suffering from overwork and punishment, 
his feeble health failed, and he told his Scotch friends one day that he was not able to work any more or do anything that his brother wanted him to do, that he was beaten every day, and that he had come to thank them for their kindness and to bid them good-bye, for he was going to drown himself in Mears Lake. "'Oh, Charlie, Charlie!' they cried. "'You mustn't talk that way. Cheer up. You'll soon be stronger. We all love you. Cheer up, cheer up, and always come here whenever you need anything.' "'Oh, no,' he pathetically replied. "'I know you love me, but I can't cheer up any more. My heart's gone, and I want to die.' Next day, when Mr. Anderson, a carpenter, whose house was on the west shore of our lake, was going to a spring, he saw a man wade out through the rushes and lily pads and throw himself forward into deep water. This was poor Charlie. Fortunately, Mr. Anderson had a skiff close by, and as the distance was not great, he reached the broken-hearted imbecile in time to save his life, and, after trying to cheer him, took him home to his brother but even this terrible proof of despair failed to soften the latter. He seemed to regard the attempted suicide simply as a crime calculated to bring the reproach of the neighbors upon him. One morning, after receiving another beating, Charlie was set to work chopping firewood in front of the house, and after feebly swinging his axe a few times, he pitched forward on his face and died on the woodpile. The unnatural brother then walked over to the neighbor who had saved Charlie from drowning, and, after talking on ordinary affairs, crops, the weather, etc., said in a careless tone, "'I have a little job a carpenter work for you, Mr. Anderson.' "'What is it, mister?' "'I want you to make a coffin.' "'A coffin?' said the startled carpenter. "'Who is dead?' "'Charlie,' he coolly replied. All the neighbors were in tears over the poor child man's fate. But, strange to say, in all that excessively law-abiding neighborhood, none was bold enough or kind enough to break the blacksmith's jaw. The mixed lot of settlers around us offered a favorable field for observation of the different kinds of people of our own race. We were swift to note the way they behaved, the differences in their religion and morals, and in their ways of drawing a living from the same kind of soil under the same general conditions how they protected themselves from the weather, how they were influenced by new doctrines and old ones seen in new lights in preaching, lecturing, debating, bringing up their children, etc., and how they regarded the Indians, those first settlers and owners of the ground that was being made into farms. I well remember my father's discussing with a Scotch neighbor, a Mr. George Mayer, the Indian question as to the rightful ownership of the soil. Mr. Mayer remarked one day that it was pitiful to see how the unfortunate Indians, children of nature, living on the natural products of the soil, hunting, fishing, and even cultivating small cornfields on the most fertile spots, were now being robbed of their lands and pushed ruthlessly back into narrower and narrower limits by alien races who were cutting off their means of livelihood. Father replied that surely it could never have been the intention of God to allow Indians to rove and hunt over so fertile a country and hold it forever in unproductive wilderness, while Scotch and Irish and English farmers could put it to so much better use, where an Indian required thousands of acres for his family, 
those acres in the hands of industrious, God-fearing farmers would support ten or a hundred times more people in a far worthier manner, while at the same time helping to spread the gospel. Mr. Mayer urged that such farming as our first immigrants were practicing was in many ways rude and full of mistakes of ignorance. Yet, rude as it was and ill-tilled as were most of our Wisconsin farms by unskilled, inexperienced settlers who had been merchants and mechanics and servants in the old countries, how should we like to have specially trained and educated farmers drive us out of our homes and farms, such as they were, making use of the same argument that God could never have intended such ignorant, unprofitable, devastating farmers as we were to occupy land upon which scientific farmers could raise five or ten times as much on each acre as we did. And I well remember thinking that Mr. Mayer had the better side of the argument. It then seemed to me that, whatever the final outcome might be, it was at this stage of the fight only an example of the rule of might, with but little or no thought for the right or welfare of the other fellow, if he were the weaker, that they should take who had the power, and they should keep who can, as Wordsworth makes the marauding Scottish Highlanders say. Many of our old neighbors toiled and sweated and grubbed themselves into their graves years before their natural dying days in getting a living on a quarter section of land and vaguely trying to get rich while bread and raiment might have been serenely won on less than a fourth of this land and time gained to get better acquainted with god i was put to the plough at the age of twelve when my head reached but little above the handles and for many years i had to do the greater part of the ploughing it was hard work for so small a boy. Nevertheless, as good ploughing was exacted from me as if I were a man, and very soon I had to become a good ploughman, or rather ploughboy, none could draw a straighter furrow. For the first few years the work was particularly hard on account of the tree stumps that had to be dodged. Later the stumps were all dug and chopped out to make way for the McCormick Reaper, and because I proved to be the best chopper and stump digger, I had nearly all of it to myself. It was dull, hard work, leaning over on my knees all day, chopping out those tough oak and hickory stumps, deep down below the crowns of the big roots. Some, though, fortunately not many, were two feet or more in diameter. And as I was the eldest boy, the greater part of all the other hard work of the farm quite naturally fell on me. I had to split rails for long lines of zigzag fences, the trees that were tall enough and straight enough to afford one or two logs ten feet long were used for rails. The others, too knotty or cross-grained, were disposed of in log and cordwood fences. Making rails was hard work and required no little skill. I used to cut and split a hundred a day from our short, knotty oak timber, swinging the axe and heavy mallet, often with sore hands, from early morning to night father was not successful as a rail splitter after trying the work with me a day or two he in despair left it all to me i rather liked it for i was proud of my skill and tried to believe that i was as tough as the timber i mauled though this and other heavy jobs stopped my growth and earned for me the title runt of the family in those early days long before the great labor-saving machines came to our help 
almost everything connected with wheat raising abounded in trying work cradling in the long sweaty dog days raking and binding stacking thrashing and it often seemed to me that our fierce over-industrious way of getting the grain from the ground was too closely connected with grave digging the staff of life naturally beautiful oftentimes suggested the grave digger's spade men and boys in those days even women and girls were cut down while cutting the wheat the fat folk grew lean and the lean leaner while the rosy cheeks brought from scotland and other cool countries across the sea faded to yellow like the wheat we were all made slaves through the vice of over industry the same was in great part true in making hay to keep the cattle and horses through the long winters we were called in the morning at four o'clock and seldom got to bed before nine making a broiling seething day seventeen hours long loaded with heavy work while i was only a small stunted boy and a few years later my brothers david and daniel and my older sisters had to endure about as much as i did in the harvest dog days and dog nights and dog mornings when we arose from our clammy beds our cotton shirts clung to our backs as wet with sweat as the bathing suits of swimmers and remained so all the long sweltering days in mowing and cradling the most exhausting of all the farm work i made matters worse by foolish ambition in keeping ahead of the hired men never a warning word was spoken of the dangers of overwork on the contrary even when sick we were held to our tasks as long as we could stand once in harvest time i had the mumps and was unable to swallow any food except milk but this was not allowed to make any difference while i staggered with weakness and sometimes fell headlong among the sheaves only once was i allowed to leave the harvest field when i was stricken down with pneumonia i lay gasping for weeks but the scotch are hard to kill and i pulled through no physician was called for father was an enthusiast and always said and believed that god and hard work were by far the best doctors none of our neighbors was so excessively industrious as father though nearly all of the scotch english and irish worked too hard trying to make good homes and to lay up money enough for comfortable independence excepting small garden patches few of them had owned land in the old country here their craving land hunger was satisfied and they were naturally proud of their farms and tried to keep them as neat and clean and well tilled as gardens to accomplish this without the means for hiring help was impossible flowers were planted about the neatly kept log or frame houses barnyards granaries etc were kept in about as neat order as the homes and the fences and cornrows were rigidly straight but every uncut weed distressed them so also did every ungathered ear of grain and all that was lost by birds and gophers and this over-carefulness bred endless work and worry as for money for many a year there was precious little of it in the country for anybody eggs sold at six cents a dozen in trade and five-cent calico was exchanged at twenty-five cents a yard wheat brought fifty cents a bushel in trade to get cash for it before the portage railroad was built it had to be hauled to milwaukee a hundred miles away on the other hand food was abundant 
eggs chickens pigs cattle wheat corn potatoes garden vegetables of the best and wonderful melons as luxuries no other wild country i have ever known extended a kinder welcome to poor immigrants on the arrival in the spring a log house could be built a few acres ploughed the virgin sod planted with corn potatoes etc and enough raised to keep a family comfortably the very first year and wild hay for cows and oxen grew in abundance on the numerous meadows the american settlers were wisely content with smaller fields and less of everything kept indoors during excessively hot or cold weather rested when tired went off fishing and hunting at the most favorable times and seasons of the day and year gathered nuts and berries and in general tranquilly accepted all the good things the fertile wilderness offered after eight years of this dreary work of clearing the fountain lake farm fencing it and getting it in perfect order building a frame house and the necessary outbuildings for the cattle and horses after all this had been victoriously accomplished and we had made out to escape with life father bought a half section of wild land about four or five miles to the eastward and began all over again to clear and fence and break up other fields for a new farm, doubling all the stunting, heartbreaking, chopping, grubbing, stump digging, rail splitting, fence building, barn building, house building, and so forth. By this time I had learned to run the breaking plow. Most of these plows were very large, turning furrows from eighteen inches to two feet wide, and were drawn by four or five yoke of oxen. They were used only for the first plowing, in breaking up the wild sod woven into a tough mass, chiefly by the cord-like roots of perennial grasses, reinforced by the tap-roots of oak and hickory bushes called grubs, some of which were more than a century old and four or five inches in diameter. In the hardest plowing on the most difficult ground, the grubs were said to be as thick as the hair on a dog's back. If in good trim, the plow cut through and turned over these grubs as if the century-old wood were soft, like the flesh of carrots and turnips. But if not in good trim, the grubs promptly tossed the plow out of the ground. A stout Highland Scot, our neighbor, whose plow was in bad order and who did not know how to trim it, was vainly trying to keep it in the ground by main strength while his son, who was driving and merrily whipping up the cattle, would cry encouragingly, "'Hold her in, father, hold her in!' "'But how in the devil can I hold her in when she'll no stop in?' his perspiring father would reply, gasping for breath between each word. On the contrary, with the share and coulter sharp and nicely adjusted, the plough, instead of shying at every grub and jumping out, ran straight ahead without need of steering or holding, and gripping the ground so firmly that it could hardly be thrown out at the end of the furrow. Our breaker turned a furrow two feet wide, and on our best land, where the sod was toughest, held so firm a grip that at the end of the field my brother, who was driving the oxen, had to come to my assistance in throwing it over on its side to be drawn around the end of the landing and it was all I could do to set it up again. But I learned to keep that plow in such trim that after I got started on a new furrow, 
I used to ride on the crossbar between the handles with my feet resting comfortably on the beam, without having to steady or steer it in any way on the whole length of the field, unless we had to go around a stump, for it sawed through the biggest grubs without flinching. The growth of these grubs was interesting to me. When an acorn or hickory nut had sent up its first season sprout a few inches long, it was burned off in the autumn grass fires, but the root continued to hold on to life, forming a callus over the wound, and sent up one or more shoots the next spring. Next autumn these new shoots were burned off, but the root and calloused head, about level with the surface of the ground, continued to grow and send up more new shoots, and so on, almost every year, until very old, probably far more than a century, while the tops, which would naturally have become tall, broad-headed trees, were only mere sprouts, seldom more than two years old. Thus the ground was kept open like a prairie, with only five or six trees to the acre, which had escaped the fire by having the good fortune to grow on a bare spot at the door of a fox or badger den, or between straggling grass tufts wide apart on the poorest sandy soil. The uniformly rich soil of the Illinois and Wisconsin prairies produced so close and tall a growth of grasses for fires that no tree could live on it. Had there been no fires, these fine prairies, so marked a feature of the country, would have been covered by the heaviest forests. As soon as the oak openings in our neighborhood were settled, and the farmers had prevented running grass fires, the grubs grew up into trees and formed tall thickets so dense that it was difficult to walk through them, and every trace of the sunny openings vanished. We called our second farm Hickory Hill, from its many fine hickory trees and the long, gentle slope leading up to it. Compared with Fountain Lake Farm, it lay high and dry. The land was better, but it had no living water, no spring or stream or meadow or lake. A well ninety feet deep had to be dug, all except the first ten feet or so, in fine-grained sandstone. When the sandstone was struck, my father, on the advice of a man who had worked in mines, tried to blast the rock, but from lack of skill the blasting went on very slowly, and father decided to have me do all the work with Mason's chisels, a long, hard job with a good deal of danger in it. I had to sit cramped in a space about three feet in diameter, and wearily chip, chip, with heavy hammer and chisels from early morning until dark, day after day, for weeks and months. In the morning, Father and David lowered me in a wooden bucket by a windlass, hauled up what chips were left from the night before, then went away to the farm work and left me until noon, when they hoisted me out for dinner. After dinner, I was promptly lowered again, the forenoon's accumulation of chips hoisted out of the way, and I was left until night. One morning, after the dreary bore was about eighty feet deep, my life was all but lost in deadly choke damp, carbonic acid gas that had settled at the bottom during the night. Instead of clearing away the chips as usual when I was lowered to the bottom, I swayed back and forth and began to sink under the poison. Father, alarmed that I did not make any noise, shouted, "'What's keeping you so still?' 
to which he got no reply. Just as I was settling down against the side of the wall, I happened to catch a glimpse of a branch of a bur oak tree which leaned out over the mouth of the shaft. This suddenly awakened me, and to father's excited shouting I feebly murmured, "'Take me out!' But when he began to hoist he found I was not in the bucket, and in wild alarm shouted, "'Get in! Get in the bucket and hold on! Hold on!' Somehow I managed to get into the bucket, and that is all I remembered until I was dragged out violently gasping for breath. One of our near neighbors, a stonemason and miner by the name of William Duncan, came to see me, and after hearing the particulars of the accident, he solemnly said, "'Well, Johnny, it's God's mercy that you're alive. Many a companion of mine I have seen dead with choke damp, but none that I ever saw or heard of was so near to death in it as you were and escaped without help. Mr. Duncan taught father to throw water down the shaft to absorb the gas and also to drop a bundle or brush of hay attached to a light rope, dropping it again and again to carry down pure air and stir up the poison. When, after a day or two, I had recovered from the shock, father lowered me again to my work, after taking the precaution to test the air with a candle and stir it up well with a brush and hay bundle. The weary hammer and chisel chipping went on as before, only more slowly, until ninety feet down, when at last I struck a fine hearty gush of water. Constant dropping wears away stone, so does constant chipping, while at the same time wearing away the chipper. Father never spent an hour in that well. He trusted me to sink it straight and plumb, and I did, and built a fine covered top for it, and swung two iron-bound buckets in it, from which we all drank for many a day. The honey-bee arrived in America long before we boys did, but several years passed ere we noticed any on our farm. The introduction of the honey-bee into flowery America formed a grand epoch in bee history. This sweet, humming creature, companion and friend of the flowers, is now distributed over the greater part of the continent filling countless hollows in rocks and trees with honey, as well as the millions of hives prepared for them by honey farmers, who keep and tend their flocks of sweet-winged cattle, as shepherds keep sheep, a charming employment, like directing sunbeams, as Thoreau says. The Indians call the honey-bee the white man's fly, and though they had been long acquainted with several species of bumblebees that yielded more or less honey, how gladly surprised they must have been when they discovered that, in the hollow trees where before they had found only coons or squirrels, they found swarms of brown flies with fifty or even a hundred pounds of honey sealed up in beautiful cells. With their keen hunting senses they, of course, were not slow to learn the habits of the little brown immigrants and the best methods of tracing them to their sweet homes, however well hidden. During the first few years none were seen on our farm, though we sometimes heard father's hired men talking about lining bees. None of us boys ever found a bee tree or tried to find any until about ten years after our arrival in the woods. On the Hickory Hill farm there is a ridge of moraine material, rather dry but flowery, with goldenrods and asters of many species, upon which we saw bees feeding in the late autumn just when their hives were fullest of honey, 
and it occurred to me one day that I was of age and my own master that I must try to find a bee-tree. I made a little box about six inches long and four inches deep and wide, bought half a pound of honey, went to the goldenrod hill, swept a bee into the box, and closed it. The lid had a pane of glass in it, so I could see when the bee had sucked its fill and was ready to go home. At first it groped around trying to get out, but smelling the honey it seemed to forget everything else, and while it was feasting I carried the box and a small sharp-pointed stake to an open spot where I could see about me, fixed the stake in the ground, and placed the box on the flat top of it. When I thought that the little feaster must be about full I opened the box, but it was in no hurry to fly. It slowly crawled up to the edge of the box, lingered a minute or two cleaning its legs that had become sticky with honey, and when it took wing, instead of making what is called a bee-line for home, it buzzed around the box and minutely examined it, as if trying to fix a clear picture of it in its mind so as to be able to recognize it when it returned for another load, then circled around at a little distance as if looking for something to locate it by. I was the nearest object, and the thoughtful worker buzzed in front of my face and took a good stare at me, and then flew up to the top of an oak on the side of the open spot in the center of which the honey-box was. Keeping a keen watch, after a minute or two of rest or wing-cleaning, I saw it fly in wide circles round the tops of the trees nearest the honey-box, and, after apparently satisfying itself, make a bee-line for the hive. Looking endwise on the line of flight, I saw that what is called a bee-line is not an absolutely straight line, but a line in general straight made of many slight, wavering, lateral curves. After taking as true a bearing as I could, I waited and watched. In a few minutes, probably ten, I was surprised to see that bee arrive at the end of the outleaning limb of the oak mentioned above, as though that was the first point it had fixed in its memory to be dependent on in retracing the way back to the honey-box. From the treetop it came straight to my head, then straight to the box, entered without the least hesitation, filled up and started off after the same preparatory dressing and taking of bearings as before. Then I took particular pains to lay down the exact course so I would be able to trace it to the hive. Before doing so, however, I made an experiment to test the worth of the impression I had that the little insect found the way back to the box by fixing telling points in its mind. While it was away, I picked up the honey-box and set it on the stake a few rods from the position it had thus far occupied, and stood there watching. In a few minutes I saw the bee arrive at its guide-mark, the overleaning branch on the tree-top, and thence came bouncing down right to the spaces in the air which had been occupied by my head and the honey-box, and when the cunning little honey-gleaner found nothing there but empty air, it whirled round and round as if confused and lost, and although I was standing with the open honey-box within fifty or sixty feet of the former feasting spot, it could not, or at least did not, find it. Now that I had learned the general direction of the hive, I pushed on in search of it. I had gone perhaps a quarter of a mile when I caught another bee, which, after getting loaded, went through the same performance of circling round and round the honey-box, buzzing in front of me and staring me in the face to be able to recognize me. But, as if the adjacent trees and bushes were sufficiently well known, 
It simply looked around at them and bolted off without much dressing, indicating, I thought, that the distance to the hive was not great. I followed on and very soon discovered it in the bottom log of a cornfield fence, but some lucky fellow had discovered it before me and robbed it. The robbers had chopped a large hole in the log, taken out most of the honey, and left the poor bees late in the fall, when winter was approaching, to make haste to gather all the honey they could from the latest flowers to avoid starvation in the winter. End of chapter 6